ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So carrying on then from where we left off last time, the previous chapter that we did was Babu al-Istinja wa Adab qada al-Haja, the chapter regarding purifying oneself after answering the call of nature. That was the last chapter. So today then, we move on to the next one, which is Fasl. إزالة النجاسة والأشياء النجسة. The chapter regarding how to cleanse and purify and remove impurity. If impurity comes upon you, then or upon your clothes or upon the ground. Then how to remove that impurity and to get rid of that impurity and what are the categories of impurities? What things are considered impure? So that is what we'll discuss today then. Anybody want to read? Allah 
وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم المؤمن لا ينجس حيا ولا ميت ولا ميتا وقال احل احل لنا ميتان ودمان وعمل ميتان فالحوت والجراد وعمل وعمل دمان وعمل دمان فالكبت والدحال رواه احمد وابن ماجه وأما أرواف الحيوانات المأكولة وأقوالها فهي طاهرة ومن الآدمي الطاهر كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يغسل رضبة ويفرق يابسة وقول الغلام الصغير الذي لم يأكل الطعام لشهوة يكفي فيها النضح كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يغسل من بول الجارية ويرش من بول الغلام رواه أبو داود والنسائي وإذا زالت عين النجاسة طهر المحل ولم يضر بقاء اللون والريح لقوله صلى الله عليه وسلم للخولة بنت يسار في الدم يكفيك الماء ولا يضرك أصده So to begin with then we'll just mention the different types of النجاسة there are two main types or categories of an-najasa. The first is najasa ainiya, something that is impure by its very essence. Sometimes a an impurity is of the type where something is impure by its very essence. So if something is impure by its very essence, by its very nature, then that means no matter how much you wash it, it is still impure. If something is impure by its nature, by its very essence, then it doesn't matter how much you wash it, it is still impure. Examples of that, a pig, impure, wash it as much as you want, the ruling on it is that it is impure. And urine and feces, they are impure. These items by their essence, by their very nature, are impure. So that is impurity by its essence. The second type of impurity is najasa hukmiya, where an impurity occurs upon something else, so that item prior to the impurity occurring to it, was not impure. So this is a temporary impurity 
that has now come upon it. This is not an impurity by its nature, not an impurity by the essence of that thing, but an impurity that has occurred temporarily upon it. You get some urine on your garment. The garment, was it impure by its essence? No. But now that urine has come upon it, it has become impure in that temporary state due to the impurity coming upon it. So that's the second type. Where an impurity upon something, some item, some garment, your body, the ground, it wasn't impure to begin with by its essence, but it became impure for that moment or that time by the impurity coming upon it. Those are the two types of impurity. The two general groups or categories of impurity. We're going to get to the exact examples in a moment. He says here in the book, وَيَكْفِي فِي غَصْلِ جَمِيعِ النَّجَاسَاتِ عَلَى الْبَدْنِ أو الثوب أو البقعة أو غيرها أن تزول عينها عن المحل That it is sufficient, it is enough to wash all types of impurities from the body or the garment or the ground or other than that all of them it is sufficient and enough to cleanse them by washing them to the point whereby the core, the essence of that impurity is removed from that place. So if you have some... Here we're talking about which category of impurities to begin with. The second type, the first type, nothing to discuss. They are impure by their essence. They are the things that are basically going to make the impurities in our discussion now. So now when some impurity has occurred somewhere, either on your body or on your garment or on the ground, the Shaykh says here, it is sufficient to wash that away, to cleanse it, by washing it to the point where the core or the essence of that impurity has been removed from that place. So now somebody got some urine on their garment, a patch of urine on their garment. You wash that patch until the essence of that impurity disappears. The essence of the impurity, you can go back to the rules Regarding water, the three characteristics, smell, smell taste, taste, color, the smell, the taste, the color, all of it gone, the impurity has gone, it's been removed, and that is all that is required in the removal of an impurity, that you wash it enough to remove that impurity from that place, to remove the smell of it, the color of it, the taste of it, 
the essence of that impurity is gone by washing it away. That is the asal of removing impurity. The default, the asal of removing impurity is to use water. Water is the default, the origin, the asal of removing impurities. وَيَنَزِّلَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً لِيُطَهِّرَكُمْ بِهِ As Allah mentioned in the Quran, Al-Anfal number 11, that He brings down upon you from the skies water to purify you with it. So water is the asal of purification and the removal of impurities. So that's what he begins by saying, that the rule is to cleanse and purify something that has become impure, is to wash it to the extent that the essence of that impurity disappears. لِأَنَّ الشَّارِعْ لَمْ يَشْتَرِطْ فِي جَمِيعِ غَصْلِ النَّجَاسَاتِ عَدَدًا because Allah, the legislator, did not obligate upon us or make any rule upon us or any condition upon us that you must wash that impurity any specific number of times. It's not about the specific number of times. You may wash it once and it's gone, then again you may need to wash it two or three times before it's gone. There is no number that has been mentioned as a condition in the removal of an impurity. You wash it until it goes. Could be once, could be twice, could be three times, until that impurity disappears and goes. So there is no specific number of times that you have to wash something to remove an impurity from it, except what has been mentioned regarding the impurity of the saliva of the dog. When in the hadith it mentions, إِذَا وَلَغَ الْكَلْبُ فِي إِنَاءِ أَحَدِيكُمْ فَلْيَغْسِلْهُ سَبْعًا أو سَبْعًا مَرَّاتٍ أُولَاهُنَّ بِالتُّرَابٍ in the other versions, in the other version, that if a dog licks one of your vessels, one of your utensils, a dog licks into it with its tongue and saliva, then wash that utensil seven times. The first time with some Soil, in the other version of the hadith, it says, one of the seven times with soil. In uh, some versions, it mentions the seventh or the eighth time. There are some different versions. But the point being, from those seven times, at least one of the washings must be done with some soil. The scholars, they say, you could uh, put the soil into that utensil, then pour the water on it, and that makes one washing, and then 
six more without any soil or that you could do the seven washings with water and then use the soil to rub it around or maybe at the beginning use the soil to rub it around and then seven washings with water as long as that soil has gone in there for a part of the washing process is it permissible to use something else instead of soil or does it have to be soil the hadith says soil but can you use alternatives or equivalents to soil if it happens now and you need to wash your cup can you use seven washings and one of the washings with fairy liquid is that permissible or not? Or do you have to go out and get some soil from the garden? Get soil if you, if you can get it. If you can get soil, soil everywhere. We're not living in London. <laughs> so, soil or fairy liquid allowed? Soap allowed? Any other type of liquid chemicals we have these days? Is it allowed as one of the washings to replace the soil or must it be soil? Some scholars, they say it must be soil very clearly because the hadith says soil. And Sheikh Al-Fawzan, he mentions that these days with the studies that they've done, there are some studies, as Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentioned this, that highlight or indicate that possibly there are certain elements within soil that neutralize that which is in the saliva of dogs. That certain studies have found that there are certain things within soil that neutralize the saliva of dogs. Not that this is going to be our reasoning as such. Our reasoning is because the hadith says so. If the science apparently backs it up, then alhamdulillah. Even if it doesn't, irrelevant, regardless. If the kuffar now came along and said, no, soil makes it worse, what are you talking about? You're going to get your cup dirty. We say irrelevant. The hadith has told us soil is used in one of them. So that's just a supplementary point you can make. Uh, a, a supporting evidence as they say. That the Sheikh mentioned some of the studies they have apparently indicated. That there are certain, ingredient, uh, certain compounds or whatever in soil. That neutralize what is in the saliva of dogs. And therefore cleanses your a utensil. So some scholars they say it has to be soil. There is a hikmah and a wisdom behind using soil in the cleansing of the utensil from a dog's saliva, from the dog licking it. Other scholars have said that these chemicals that we have these days, fairy and whatever else, these washing up liquids, that they could be considered as the equivalent of using soil. Some of them have mentioned they could be considered as an equivalent to using the soil because they, 
the way they designed and their purpose of cleansing and cleaning and everything else, that they do the type of job and the wisdom that the soil would do. But if a person wanted to remain clear of any dispute, then when you are washing that cup, that utensil, you would simply use some soil in one of the washings to remove any dispute from your affair. So the point the Shaykh was making here at the beginning, Abdurrahman Rahmanullah, that when you are purifying some impurity with water, there is no condition of how many times you have to wash that item, except for the licking of the dog into some utensil, that does require seven times. What about the rest of the body of the dog? You're walking on the street and a dog brushes up against you. Do you have to wash your thobe seven times? And the first time with some soil? A lot of the scholars, they say that ruling is specific to the saliva of the dog. And not to the sweat of the dog or the body of the dog. That it is about the saliva of the dog licking into your cup or plate that you must then wash it with those seven washings, one of them with soil. That's the first point. Then he goes on to mention here now, what are the different types of things that are actually impure? What are the impurities? A list of impurities. Number one, he mentions, Bawlul Adami. The urine of a person, Bawlul Adami, the urine of a person. Urine is an impurity, and there are evidences to highlight that urine is an impurity. One of them is the example of the boy and the girl, and we're going to get to that hadith shortly. The point of that narration where you only have to sprinkle on the urine of the boy but wash the urine of the girl indicates that the default in urine is that it is impure. You have to wash it, but an exception is given about sprinkling on the boy's urine. So those kinds of narrations, they indicate the impurity of urine. You could even possibly use examples like the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ when he walked past the two graves and he mentioned that they are being punished in their grave. They are being punished. And then he mentioned the reason. In one uh, version of the hadith, that he never used to look after himself when urinating, and the impurity would therefore fall onto his body and his garments. He never used to keep clean when urinating. So that's the first thing urine is impure. The second, feces. Feces, also impure, urine and feces, both of those considered impure. 
and and that's the feces of humans right now we're talking about humans human urine and human feces are impure they are nejis the third one there is some difference over what them the third one mentioned here is blood human blood this is all about human so far these first three human blood highlighted here as being impure and he mentions Except that there is an exception for small amounts of blood. A small amount of blood, there is no problem with that, but proper blood coming out of a person considered impure, he mentions here. With this one, there are various discussions around it. Some scholars, they say, yes, that can be considered impure, but only if it comes out from sabilain, from the private parts, front or rear. If blood comes out from the private parts, the front or the rear, from the two passageways, as they are known as, sabilain, then it's impure, najis. If blood comes out from the two passageways, the frontal private parts and the rear private parts, then it is impure. So some of them say only in that circumstance is blood impure. Whereas if you injure yourself and blood comes out of your arm, not impure, according to some of them. And there are some narrations, there are some hadith that would indicate that blood that comes out of other than the two passageways is not considered an impurity. One of those examples that indicates that is when the companions used to be in battle and they would be praying Prayer is still required even in the state of jihad. They would be in that state of jihad in battle and they would be praying. And perhaps whilst they were praying, they would be maybe in that overall battle going on, maybe something wherever they've gone and stood, something comes and strikes them. Maybe an arrow ends up coming and striking their leg and this occurred and it's mentioned in seerah. And so now the blood is flowing out. The blood is coming out of their leg or wherever it is. But when those incidents happen to those companions, is it narrated that they then stopped their prayer, went and washed their body and their garment and that wound because the blood is impure, and then came back and started again? Or did they carry on and finish their prayer? Carried on and finished their prayer, which would seem to indicate that the blood coming out from there is not considered 
impure, otherwise they'd be praying with an impurity on their body, on their garments, on the floor where they're prostrating now. There would be impurity in all three. In the state of battle, if they were struck, impurity on their garment, impurity on their body, impurity with the blood falling on the floor, where they're going to prostrate and do tashahud and sit. And yet they never stopped their prayer or broke it off, carried on and finished their prayer. So that could be argued as an evidence that blood that comes out of the rest of the body isn't considered impure. But only if it comes out from the two passageways. Uh, it mentions here, as Sheikh Al-Fawzan, he states, وَهَكَذَا كَانَ حَالُ الصَّحَابَةِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ كَانَتْ تُصِيبُهُمْ الْجَرَاحَاتِ وَتَنْزِفُ مِنْهُمُ الدِّمَاءِ وَلَمْ يُذْكَرْ عَنْهُمْ بِأَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا يَتَوَضَّؤُونَ مِنْهَا That the companions in that state of battle they would be afflicted with injuries and the blood would be coming out of those injuries. But it's never mentioned that they ever went and repeated their wudu and cleansed themselves and came back to pray again. So that's a discussion between the scholars on the issue of human blood. Is it impure absolutely or is it only if it exits from the two passageways? And not if it exits from elsewhere. That's an opinion of some of them also. And then he gives some examples, but now it expands out of just humans. Now he goes on to talk about blood generally. <clears throat> he says, وَمِثْلُهُ الدَّمُ الْمَسْفُوحُ مِنَ الْحَيَوَانِ الْمَأْكُولِ دُونَ الَّذِي يَبْقَى فِي اللَّحْمِ وَالْعُرُوءِ فَإِنَّهُ طَاحِرٌ The blood that gushes out, that flows out of the animals that are permissible to eat. When we talk about the rulings on animals, the animals are categorized into two groups. Animals that are permissible to slaughter and eat and animals that are impermissible to slaughter and eat you can't just slaughter any animal and eat it certain types of animals cannot be slaughtered islamically not allowed you cannot eat them and others can here he's talking about the animals that are permissible to be slaughtered and eaten sheep uh, camel cows etc when you slaughter them and the blood gushes out from them, that blood is considered impure. That blood is considered impure and it's impermissible to eat that blood. You have to allow it to gush out and that's why Islamically when you do the slaughtering of an animal, the Islamic method of slaughtering an animal is that the slaughtering when it's done on the neck, you have to cut four main areas within the neck. 
for the Islamic slaughtering that is agreed upon, then four areas of the neck must be cut. The two large um, jugular veins, the two large jugular either side, those two, then the esophagus and the trachea. You have the pipe that you breathe with and you have the pipe that you eat with. A pipe that you eat with and a pipe that you breathe with and then two big blood pipes to make it easy and simple. So those four pipes, when you do the slaughtering, by agreement of the scholars, if you cut through those four pipes, then the slaughtering is legitimate and Islamic. What if you're a little bit inexperienced and maybe it's the first time you're doing it. So when you do it, you manage to cut through three of those pipes and the fourth one is intact. And that's it, you stop and you can't do anymore, you drop the knife. <clears throat> Acceptable or not? I'll just give the knife to someone else to, to finish. They're all more scared than you. <laughs> so now you've cut three of the pipes, the fourth one hasn't been cut. Is it legitimate? Is that now sacrificed Islamically or not? Most of the scholars, the majority, allow it if three out of the four pipes are cut. So that would pass. If you only manage to cut two of the pipes, now you're into extremely dangerous territory in terms of permissibility. But three is the minimum where the scholars are generally still all agreed, generally still all okay. As long as you've cut through three out of the four pipes, then it is an acceptable slaughtering, but less than three pipes, only two of the pipes, then there is, uh, for most of the scholars, it is not a correct type of slaughtering that you've done. So when you cut through the animal, and you don't just cut the whole of the neck off, you cut through those pipes and the neck is attached and the back of the neck is still attached. And that's why you see after the slaughtering there is still movement in the muscles of the animal. And that movement and the continued heartbeat allows the blood to then flow out. If you instantly kill the animal in terms of stopping its heartbeat, the blood just clots up inside the body. So the heart continues momentarily and the blood continues to come out and you have the muscle spasms etc they continue for a while for up to two three four five minutes after you cut the neck of the animal and that all allows the blood to be pumped out of the animal that blood that pumps out now it is impure the sheikh mentions here adam al-masfuh from the animals that are permissible to eat Cows and sheep, etc. But the exception is the blood that remains within the meat of the animal. Afterwards, when you skin the animal, take the insides of the animal out, you have the meat of the animal left. In that meat, there's still going to be some blood. You're still, if you took that meat and put it in a bowl and washed it, the water would become 
Red, there's going to be some blood still. That blood that is left in the muscle of the animal now, in the meat of the animal, that's excused. That is not considered impure. And neither the blood in the veins and arteries of the body of the animal, there may still be some left in there. It's not all completely pumped out. So that which remains is okay. But the main blood which pumps out of the animal after you cut the throat, slaughter it, that is considered as impure. And that is one of the al-ashya al-najisa, al-dam al-masfuh min al-hayawan al-makul. So the other type in the muscle and what's left over in the veins and arteries, that's considered pure. But the original blood which all gushes out is impure. Number four, وَمِنَ النَّجَاسَاتِ And also from the impurities. بَوْلُ وَرَوْثُ كُلِّ حَيَوَانٍ مُحَرَّمٍ أَكْلُهُ the urine and the feces of animals that are not permissible to eat. So that is now talking about animals that you are not allowed to slaughter and eat. What kind of animals generally? Groups of them, not names of animals, but groups are you not allowed to slaughter and eat? Carnivores, predatory animals, carnivores that have the carnivorous teeth, they are carnivorous, carnivores, you don't slaughter them and eat them for example. So all types of animals that you're not allowed to slaughter and eat, like even domesticated donkeys, al-humur al-ahliya, those domesticated donkeys and the baghal, another type mule, and those types of animals that you're not supposed to slaughter and eat, they're not from the animals that are permissible to eat, their urine and their feces are considered impure. So what therefore of the urine and the feces of sheep and camels and goats and cows? Pure. So if you are walking through a farm, and the, the droppings of a sheep, they came upon you, you could still go and pray, because that isn't considered an impurity. The urine and the feces of animals that you are allowed to eat, they are not considered as an impurity. Then he mentions number five, wasibah. Predatory animals, they are all considered impure. And that is in respect to this context that is being mentioned. Predatory animals, you cannot slaughter them, sacrifice them and eat them. They are all considered impure. Their saliva would be considered impure the predatory animals. And that's why when it comes to cats, cats are technically predators. Cats are predators. They eat the rats and the mice and other things. They are carnivorous in that way. So according to what we're saying here, they would be considered pure or impure. Impure. 
But then we have a hadith in the sunnah. We have that narration from Abu Qatada where he came home one day and there was a bowl of water and he was about to make wudu from it and his wife said that the cat, the cat had been drinking from there. And then he told her that the Prophet wasallam said إِنَّهَا مِنَ الطَّوَّافِينَ عَلَيْكُمْ The hirra, the cat, it is from the animals that is constantly around you, constantly in your homes, in your gardens, in and out, regularly and constantly in human contact. And so the Prophet ﷺ told us that this is an exception, it is not considered impure, due to the consistency of its interaction with humans in and out of their homes everywhere, that this exception and ease has been given in the religion, they are not considered to be impure. So normally predatory animals, carnivorous animals, they are considered impure. Then number six, وَكَذَلِكَ الْمَيْتَاتِ إِلَّا مَيْتَةَ الْآدَمِي وَمَا لَا نَفْسَ لَهُ سَائِلَةِ والسمك والجرات لأنها طاهرة. Number six from the affairs that are considered as impure is the meta, the corpse of something, the dead body of something. Exception to that is the dead body of a human. The human is not considered impure. And the narration is mentioned later on about the believer, Al-Mu'minu la yanjusu hayyan wa la mayyitan, that the believer is not considered impure, neither alive nor in death. So the human is an exception to that, but all other dead bodies and corpses are considered as impure. وَمَا لَا نَفْسَ لَهُ and also something that does not have basically a blood flow. Certain small insects and animals, they don't have, in simple terms, a big or a proper blood flow. Like a, 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 some small fly, if you were to cut the fly, would there be blood pouring out of it? Nothing would hardly come out of it. There wouldn't be blood pouring out of it, even a tiny amount. You wouldn't see a a trickle of blood coming out. It doesn't flow in certain animals in that way. You cut them and you don't get a flow of blood coming out. Certain types of insects and small animals like that. Those kinds of small insects and animals where you cut them and it doesn't gush out with blood. They are known as the animals or the insects where there is no blood flow in them. Meaning you cut them and you're not going to get blood flowing out of them. Those kinds are an exception. Their corpses or those dead insects are not considered as impure. Wasamak and fish. Fish are not considered impure. Here we're talking about dead. All of this is the dead ones. Dead fish. Dead fish are not considered impure. A dead fish, i.e. a fish that has not been 
sacrifice. The meita, كذلك الميتات, the meita is an animal that has died, which has not been sacrificed. Those small insects, you find them dead everywhere, they've not been sacrificed, but they are not impure. You cut them in half, there's no blood flowing out of them. And also fish, a dead fish, you pick it out of the sea. Is that considered impure najis now? No. Whereas normally the default is dead animals. They are considered impure. You're walking through the forest and you see a dead rabbit just there. Then the ruling by default is that this is impure. You cannot eat that. You cannot go and now cut its throat and say I've sacrificed it. It's a meta. But fish are an exception and the evidence for them being an exception is So there are some ayat, but the clear hadith in the books of fiqh, in the books of hadith of fiqh, normally the first hadith, like in Bulugh al-Maram, the first hadith, in al-Muharrar, the first hadith, when the sailors came to the Prophet wasallam and they asked him about the ocean water, about the sea water. Is it permissible to make wudu with sea water? So the Prophet ﷺ told them, That the water, the sea water, the ocean water is pure. You can make wudu ghusl with it. And The dead animals of the sea, The animals that do not live except in the ocean. The ocean-dwelling animals, they are permissible, they are pure, even the dead ones that you have not sacrificed or anything. So the dead fish, they are considered pure. Waljarat. What is aljarat? Locusts, those types of like a grasshopper, like a cricket, those kinds of uh, animals, the locusts. Those are mentioned as well in a hadith, we're going to get to it in a moment. They are also considered as pure. So they can be eaten without sacrificing them either. You find dead ones, they are permissible to eat. Or for example, they're flying around and you've got a jar and you're catching them in your jar and then you close up the jar and they're all squashed up in there and some of them end up dying in there in that jar that you squashed them in, you've caught them in there. Some of them have died, maybe all of them end up dying in there. No problem, afterwards you can open up that jar, cook them and eat them. You have not sacrificed any of them, but there's no need for that. They are considered as pure. And there are narrations about that, how they went traveling on some occasions, and that's what they found to eat, and they would eat them. Then also, So they are pure. قال تعالى حرمت عليكم الميتات والدم uh, in this, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions all of those different forms and highlights at the beginning of the ayah that al-maytah, the dead animals, corpses that have not been sacrificed, they are impure. And adam, blood, is also impure, the blood that comes out of them, the ones that you sacrifice to. 
وَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ And these are the evidences now for everything that's been mentioned so far. That the Prophet said, الْمُؤْمِنُ لَا يَنْجُسُ حَيًّا وَلَا مَيْتًا That the believer does not become impure either in the state of being alive or in the state of being dead. So that was with regards to the human body does not consider to become impure after death. Now the Prophet said, two dead animals have been made permissible for us and two types of blood. Because normally the default on blood is impermissible, impure. But the hadith is not going to mention two exceptions. So as for the two dead animals, Al-Hut, Fal-Hut, Wal-Jarad. So that is referring to the fish and the locusts. Wa-Amma-Daman, and as for the two blood. Blood normally not allowed. We just mentioned earlier, even when you sacrifice the animal, the blood has to all gush out, it's impure. But there are two parts of the animal where the blood may be in there and it's excused. And that is Al-Kabid Wat-Tihal. The liver and spleen. Those two organs, they have an active role connected directly in your body with blood. The spleen and the liver. So the scholars, they say, those two organs, you would expect a reasonable amount of blood within them. But they are excused. Those two are excused and the blood that may be within those organs. Uh, but as for everything else and the blood in the animal, then it must be taken out, it must be removed. Other than what remains in the meat generally, the little bit that remains, or in the veins and the arteries. What about the rest of the, the organs of a, an animal? Is it permissible to eat all of the other organs of an animal? To eat the heart of an animal, the brain of an animal, the other organs of an animal, the the testicles of an animal. Is it permissible to eat those or not? Permissible? Yeah, from the animals that are the goat, the, the cow, the sheep. So therefore, all of the other organs, you can take them, halal, eat them. And there isn't in particularly any narration to highlight that certain organs are not permissible. The only thing some scholars have said though is that you could argue from the cultural stance of the people that certain body parts are not eaten. Certain body parts are not eaten and it is considered disgusting to eat certain body parts. Then the fuqaha say that you shouldn't eat those body parts then. If it is within the norms of the people and that land that you do not eat this part or that part or this uh, organ of an animal, that you don't do it. Here we live in the UK, I mentioned testicles earlier and I saw the faces of some of the brothers. 
But you go to other places, just recently I was with some of the brothers in another country and they did the sacrificing for Eid al-Adha and they made sure they took <laughs> those areas for further cooking and whatever is going to occur before consumption. So it is permissible, it is permissible, but some of the fuqaha, they say certain body parts, maybe it is not recommended that you should do for various other reasons that may be in play in regards to the culture and other affairs. Then, أَمَّا أَرْوَاثَ الْحَيَوَانَاتِ الْمَأْكُولَةِ وَأَبْوَالُهَا فَهِيَ طَاهِرَةِ We've mentioned that before, the animals that you can slaughter and eat, their uh, uh, urine and feces is considered pure. وَمَنِيُّ الْآدَمِ طَاهِرَ and also the semen of a person, the semen of a human, of a male, of a person generally, is considered pure. كَانَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم يَغْسِلُ رَطْبَهُ وَيَفْرُكُ Semen, human semen, seminal fluid, is pure. It is not considered an impurity. And... There are narrations highlighting that the Prophet ﷺ would wash the semen off his garments if it was moist and wet on his garment. And if it had dried up on his garment, he would just, or Aisha anha would just scrape it off. The fact that the Messenger would or Aisha radiallahu anha would simply just scrape off any seminal fluid that had dried up on the garment of the messenger indic and then he would wear that and go and pray in it indicates you clearly haven't fully washed out that area and purified that area you just scraped off it's still going to be there some little bits of it etc and so the messenger would still go and pray in that garment, indicating clearly that seminal fluid is not considered an impurity. If it was, it wouldn't be permissible just to scrape it off. You'd have to wash it properly and get it all out. But then what about the narrations that do mention, there's a hadith that mentions on one occasion the messenger washed, or Aisha washed an area where there was seminal fluid on the garment of the messenger, and then the messenger went out to pray and that patch was still wet from the washing of that area. So they had washed it. Wouldn't that indicate then it is impure? The messenger had it washed and that patch of wetness was still on his garment as he went to the master pray. He washed it out before he went. How do we combine that between another narration where it had dried up and Aisha radiallahu anha simply scraped off the, the bulk of it but obviously it's not going to be completely purified if you consider it impure. So then how do we combine between the two? One indicating it's pure, one indicating he washed it before he went. So you're saying moist semen is impure but dry is pure? So what though? Why did he wash it? If it's pure, why did he wash it? That's it. The scholars, they say, it's not something befitting. If you have some semen on your garment, it's not befitting 
that you would go out amongst the people and you have some semen on your garment. So the reason why he washed it was for that reason. Not for the reason that it's actually impure, but for the reason of that it's not befitting to go out with semen on your garment. So that is uh, something which is considered pure, the seminal fluid. The scholars, they mention other benefits from that. They say one of the reasons why the messenger had to do that, that Aisha scraped it off and then he wore that garment and went out to the prayer. Another time just washed that patch and went out to the prayer. Because these are narrations from a time at the life in the life of the Prophet ﷺ where he had only one garment. He only had that one garment or one thobe as we say now that he would wear during the day. He would go to sleep in that. That's the only one he had, nothing to change into. One garment. Would wear it outside, would go to sleep in it, wash it, put it on again. So when the seminal fluid came upon it, there was no other garment. There was no other garment, so you had to wash that area and then go another time. It had already become dry. There was no other garment. Scrape it off, put it on and go. And that's the same as it's going uh, to come up here regarding the women also. The women, when they would have the period and the blood would go onto their garments, it was the only garment they had. So the scholars, they say, this shows the humility of the Prophet ﷺ and the modesty and the humbleness that he was upon and the, the, the lack of luxuries of this world that the Messenger had. When you look at the seerah of the Messenger, his bed was made out of the, uh, like the palm trees, what you strip off the bark. You've seen the palm trees, the way they grow. The bark of the palm trees, you can strip those strips off. Like big pieces of grass or whatever, you strip them off. And then his bed was that. Those palm trees, strip the sides of them off. Make a few of those, make it slightly soft. That was the bed of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is just an extra benefit some scholars mentioned there. And then the final ones to round off. وَبَوْلُ الْغُلَامَ الذي لم يأكل الطعام لشهوة The urine of a baby boy who is not yet eating out of desire يكفي فيه النضح كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يغسل من بول الجارية ويرش من بول الغلام That you have to wash from the urine of a baby girl and you can simply sprinkle the water over the area of the urine of a baby boy who is not yet eating solid foods. Once he starts eating solid foods, then the ruling of the urine is the same as the normal ruling that it's impure. But the baby boy not yet eating solids himself, only milk, then that is considered impure. Uh, considered pure meaning that you do not have to uh, uh, wash it properly. And then, إِذَا زَالَتْ عَيْنُ النَّجَاسَةِ طَهُرَ الْمَحَلِّ وَلَمْ يَضُرَّ بَقَاءَ اللَّوْنِ وَالْرِيحِ So now we mentioned at the beginning, the essence of the impurity is the smell, color and taste of it. And... There's going to be some actual, sometimes a physical element to it, and sometimes not. 
Sometimes the impurity is something physical and sometimes it's not. Like urine gets on your clothes, it's not physical. It's the liquid gone into your garment, into the thread, into the cotton. Whereas feces, that's a physical thing on your garment. There's an actual physical element to that feces. So where there is a physical element, a body to that impurity, then the purification of it is to remove the body of that impurity. So if it was feces on the ground, to wash that area until all of that is washed away, the body of the feces is all washed away. Here that he mentions, so when you remove the Ainun Najasa, meaning the core of that impurity, imagine now it was some urine, and you wash and wash and wash, and it is pure, clean, but it's left a stain, maybe. Maybe the type of garment and the way it interacted with the material of your garment, you've washed it, purified it, it's gone. Clean as can be. But it's left a stain where it occurred. That stain isn't the urine now. That's washed, pure, gone. But the way it interacted with your cloth and your material, it's left a stain. That is not a problem. That color that remains, that stain, that's not impurity now. You have washed out the impurity completely, but it's left behind some type of stain. It could be, for example, some feces on the ground, on some type of uh, uh, cement or, or, or pavement, and that feces has been sitting there for two or three days, and then you come and wash it, wash it, wash it away. And it's been sunny and everything. Where you wash it away now, that piece of the cement might have a different shade to the color around it. Because, like when you have a plant pot, and you put it onto your cement or that pavement, and after a long time you remove it the way the sun has been falling and everything, underneath that area will be a different shade of color compared to the rest of your pavement. Maybe with that feces, you were sat there for two or three days, then you wash it away. Underneath, you see a different shade in that spot where it was sitting compared to the surrounding area. But is that impure? That's pure now. The body of the impurity has gone. Even if some discoloration has remained uh, to that area, the body of the impurity, the core of the impurity is gone. So that which remains from the little after effect of some staining or discoloration, that isn't considered a problem. And the evidence for that, لِقَوْلِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ لِخَوْلَهِ فِي دَمِ الْحَيْضِ يَكْفِيكِ الْمَاءِ وَلَا يَضُرُّكِ أَثَرُهُ When Khawlah, she asked about <coughs> the period blood on the garment, for the same reason, the women at the time of the Salaf, some of them had one garment only, that they wore all the time. And so when they were on their period, maybe some of the blood would get onto that garment. So they came and asked the Prophet ﷺ how to purify that garment. So he told them about scraping that area, then sprinkling water, then washing it through, doing all of that process of cleansing that area. Then after all of that process is done, if there is some discoloration left, some tinge of that 
redness from the blood left in the cotton and the material, it's sunk into it, into the fibers, that does not have any ruling. That is not considered now a problem. That garment is considered pure now and you can pray in it. So, the water is enough, you properly wash it out, then whatever discoloration may remain, that does not harm you. That is the chapter he mentions regarding the impurities. Then the next time, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll move to an important chapter, the chapter regarding how to make wudu. Bab Sifatil Wudu, the chapter regarding how to make wudu, that's the chapter, insha'Allah ta'ala, we'll begin with next time in two weeks' time, and we'll conclude upon that section for today then. Any questions or anything to add? No. Befitting, it only comes back to the urf of the people. So even in hadith, when they talk about something being from the khawarimul muru'ah, where some of the scholars of hadith, they would say if somebody does something that is undignified, then we're not going to take narrations from him. But what is the yardstick for something undignified? There isn't one. It is about the culture of the people. So as Shaykh Al-Uthameen mentioned, for example, in Saudi Arabia, it is not from the culture of dignity to eat out in the streets, to be walking around in the street with a Mars bar, or to be sitting in a cafe outside, the outside parts where they have the tables and chairs, people driving past and you're eating. That is undignified for a person of honor. Whereas in many countries now, the way it is, you could be sat in a cafe like that and there's no consideration of this being undignified. But the point is, it is all about the culture where those definitions apply. What is befitting, what is not befitting. Garments and clothes, the general rule of principle with the sunnah, with your garments, with the covering of the aura, etc. After all of that, it is that you wear the garments that are appropriate to your culture to where you are. And that's why some of the people from France, some of the brothers from France, I think it was France, they asked a Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi once, uh, they said, Sheikh, the area where we live, there are no Muslims, or hardly any. And these kinds of garments, these thobes, as we call them now, they are unknown in our particular area. Nobody touches them. Not seen, not known, the kuffar in that area have never seen this type of thing. So should we wear these in that area we live in? The sheikh said to them, no. Don't wear them there then. It's not as if this is some obligation to wear this kind of thobe. He said, wear other garments that are more appropriate to the setting. Not imitating them of course. But more appropriate to the setting. Which fulfill the guidelines of the sharia. They are loose, they are wide, they, they cover your body, they fulfill the obligations of the sharia. Then you wear those types of garments rather than something which is unknown in that area or region at all. 
So those kinds of things don't have a definition you can go by. They go off the urf of the people, as they say, the culture and the tradition of the people. That will determine whether something is befitting. In another culture, it may not be befitting. It's like the uh, uh, examples of hadith again. One of the narrators of the past, he noticed a man was trying to get his donkey or camel or some animal to come. And so the man was pretending to give that animal some food in his hand. And so when the animal came, there was actually no food and he grabbed the animal. The, the scholar or the narrator, when he saw that, he said, that is such an undignified act. Look at him, how deceitful he was with the animal. If he's deceitful with the animal like that, who knows what he's doing with narrations. Not going to narrate from him. So that's difference as you'll see in terms of the uh, culture, indignity, lack of dignity, befitting, not befitting. Anybody else? Well, the disbeliever, because he is impure, not physically, but like we said at the beginning, a dis- uh, in the beginning of the course, when we started the book, a disbeliever is impure <coughs> internally. Hence, it's not mentioned about the disbeliever. Physically, a disbeliever can wash himself, purify himself, and physically his body is pure. But internally, he is always impure if he dies upon kufr. <coughs> so perhaps that's the reason why the mu'min is mentioned, because of the internal impurity that remains with a kafir if he died upon kufr. Even alive, the saliva of predatory animals, if they came and touched you, would be considered impure. So as you know, um, the hadith about um, wearing your, the best place to wear a garment is between the ankle and the, and the knee. Mm. So a lot of brothers, you know, act upon that. So some of, in some of our cultures, when you, when you have that, when you do that, then they'll call you a Wahhabi, for example. So is it befitting in that, in that situation to still do it, just follow the sunnah? Even though your family might, you know, have because that wearing it above your ankles is an obligation. But then wearing it above your ankles, how high above? That's sunnah, up to halfway upon your shin or just barely above your ankle. So if you live in a society where it's problematic or other issues or the culture or whatever, and it's just above the ankle, you have fulfilled the obligation. And that's enough. And some scholars have even said you shouldn't then purposely try to stick out by wearing it at halfway on your shin. If everybody in your society, in your culture wears it just above the ankle, the obligation is that it doesn't fall below the ankle. As long as you don't do that, then it's permissible, legitimate, you have fulfilled the obligation. So they say, the scholars say, if you're in a society where this is the culture, it's just above the ankles, and it's not halfway on the shin and it's unknown. And they will even say or have bad thoughts of you if you do that. Scholars have mentioned you shouldn't do it then. Mixing with the society in that affair, you fulfill the obligation by keeping the garments above the ankles. Anybody else? What's the limit? What is the definition of awrah? Of? Awrah. Awrah for the man. The minimum awrah for the man is what? Navel to the knee, and the 
absolute minimum if you really push all of the statements of these scholars to the limit would be navel to the upper thigh meaning just a private area but according to most of them uh, especially when it comes to prayer etc as well the minimum is the navel to the knee and, I, and, and there's differences the young boy there's a different aura the young girl there's a different aura the slave man the slave girl there's a different aura uh, many of the scholars have mentioned you'll see it in the books of fiqh that the slave girl her aura is huh? yeah so the, the aura of a slave girl is uh, from the navel below because the slave girls were not at all in any way seen as desirable whatsoever. So there are certain statements about the differences of awra, but for the man, minimum navel to knee, and for the woman, her awra is all of her body, with the exception of the face and the hands. The face, of course, differed over regarding the obligation of niqab or the lack of obligation of it. Uh, but uh, the aura is her whole body on the whole. Including the knee. Because when you say in Arabic, ila, two, then sometimes that can include the ghaya, and sometimes it can exclude it. Uh, but in this case, when you say two, like I went, I, I ran this morning, I went for a run, and I ran all the way up to the park. Did you go to the end of the park, or did you stop at the park when you got there? When I say to you, I, I went for a run this morning, and I ran all the way up to the park. Did I go right to the end of the park, or just stop at the first gate of the park? In Arabic, ila can be both. If I said that sentence in Arabic, both meanings would be valid. That I run ila the park, it could be at the beginning, could be at the end of it. When in the uh, 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 in the Quran where it mentions you have to wash your arms, ila al al mirfaqin up to the elbows. Does that mean you wash? Up to here and stop and miss out the elbow or to the end of the elbow. So now to the end of the park is possible. So ila in Arabic can mean both. And in this case with the aura it means the covering of the knees as well. Anybody else? The, I know the, like the tight lycra ones where cyclists wear those kinds of things. The aura is two things. One is to cover the, the visibility of that area. So the lycra kind of pants, lycra I think you call them the tight ones, they cover the visibility, you can't see through them. You can't see the skin through them. But there's a second part to the validity of aura. And that is covering the shape of that area. And it's a big mistake. People think aura is just covering the visibility into that area. If it was just about covering the visibility into that area, then you could wear those tight cyclist pants, 
uh, 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 like the, the swimming gear they wear, those tight, shows all of the shape of your body, 100%. But visibility, can you see the skin through it? You can't. But that's only one part of covering the aura. Two parts. One part, you cannot visibly see the skin through it. Second part, the shape has to be covered. That's why, for example, if somebody put on one of those uh, lycra cycling type things, you wouldn't be able to pray in that. Your aura is not <coughs> covered. Visibly, the skin is covered, but the shape is not covered. Aura is the skin visibly and the shape. So if they are making up the rest of the ground with the tight lycra thing, then that's not really the right way. Because the skin is covered, the shape is not. The aura is the skin and the shape. So the shorts should be longer ideally. In that case, praying in tight pants is not allowed. No, it's not permissible. Praying in tight pants, you are covering the visible skin below them. You are not covering the shape. The shape of the aura cannot be visible either. Same thing, because it's supposed to be from the navel onwards. So even if you wear baggy pants, but you have some very tight top on, that shows the shape of your body from the navel downwards to your waist. Again, not suitable, not correct. It should be loose and covering the visibility of the skin. Also, you know when some brothers, they have loose pants on, like permissible pants to wear. Then when they pray, when they sit down, for example, the shape of their thighs show. Shape of their? Their thighs will show. Even though when they stand up, it's fine. But when, they, when they're praying... They, they should be loose enough in all of the circumstances. Loose enough in all of the circumstances. Even when you sit, there should be some bagginess left, some level of bagginess left, so that they don't become completely tight around you. You've seen like uh, those, uh, like the Moroccan pants or Algerian pants, what they call them, those trousers. Those, I mean, they are they are baggy. You can sit down on those, and nothing will appear. It doesn't have to be to that level. But you get the idea that they are supposed to be loose so that your shape isn't going to be shown whether you're going to ruku or you're going to sitting down or any other place. Not necessarily if they are... For the women amongst the women, for the women amongst other women... What is their aura then? The sisters, Muslim sisters, are sitting amongst themselves in a private, secluded house. Their husband has gone and she's invited her friends. They are sitting in that private, secluded, locked house. What do they have to cover? What's their aura amongst themselves? It is not as the people or the women of the West appear to think that you can basically then just wear anything you want. It is not the case. In that case, the women amongst themselves are allowed to uncover, but they must maintain the covering of everything other than the wudu areas. So then they are allowed to take off garments that expose the arm, the lower arm, from the elbow thereabouts onwards, They can take off their head garments, their neck can be visible. Those wudu areas, they can now take off their garments and those wudu areas are visible amongst themselves. But as for taking off the garments to the extent that it is their 
you know, the types of garments, the kafirat, they wear and everything is visible here on the chest and below and the shape of everything. Those tight kind of garments and things are not permissible between the sisters amongst themselves. Everything is to be covered other than the wudu body areas. Anybody else? It is a sin. It is a sin. To expose your aura, it is a sin. No doubt about that. Last, our time is Maghrib. No, I think last one then. the last question so what's the full question yeah this is a difference even with the dog let alone the rest of the predatory animals is it just the saliva of those animals that is considered impure is it the whole body of the animal that is considered impure that's a difference between the scholars in regards to the ruling on the saliva and the body. Some of them say it's just about the saliva of those animals. Others, they say it's the whole body as well, the fur and the sweat of those animals. When it gets on you, it's also considered impure. That's a, a difference between them on the ruling.
So we'll conclude upon that for today then, inshallah ta'ala. In two weeks' time, we'll continue with the next chapter regarding the description of wudu, inshallah.